Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. You need to be able to tell the story of your case, what your case is about, in 20 words. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, we are going to have the uh, first-time podcaster do her introduction. Go ahead. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Here are your hosts, Steve Lauer and the brilliant Yvonne Godfrey. Now to the show. Oh, very good. So that was uh, that was Ella uh, reading on for her first time. That was great. So, um, so, and I'm sorry uh, to both our guests, Mary, and to uh, Yvonne, that uh, my voice, uh, I've been battling a cold, so my voice doesn't sound great, and you might hear me. Uh, sound like a 12-year-old boy uh, and have my voice uh, squeak or change or something like that. Uh, that. That may happen every once in a while. I hope so. <laughs> exactly. It'll definitely make for a better podcast. Uh, well, Yvonne, how are you doing today? See, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Just in time. I'm, this is going to be a fun one. Um, I'm good. I'm good. My voice, my voice is the normal. Um, oh. So I'm, I've got one up on you. Yeah, exactly. Always the uh, the great radio voice. Um, well, Yvonne, I am uh, I am very excited about our uh, about our guest today. Um, let me uh, go ahead and welcome Mary Alexander from Mary Alexander and Associates in San Francisco, California. Mary, how are you doing? Great, and it's wonderful to be with you today. Well, we are so uh, so glad to have you on. And this case that we're going to be talking about is just a really fascinating case, and and. Uh, to me, you know, part of it, what's really fascinating about it is this was tried back in 1980. So, uh, so, you know, to get verdicts like this, well, 89, uh, yes, 89. 89. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I had it down as 80. That's my mistake. Uh, 89, but still, that's, uh, that's still, uh, quite a while ago. Um, but Mary, let me introduce you. And, and so our listeners can know who we're, who are listening to again, it's Mary Alexander. Her law firm is Mary Alexander and Associates. Uh, you can look up Mary at maryalexanderlaw.com. She's based in San Francisco, California. And uh, Mary, I was looking through your, um, through your bio and your story, and uh, you've got uh, a really fascinating story, which I want to I get into a little bit with you. But let me just t- tell our listeners about uh, the awards you've received, because uh, they are truly uh, top of the profession. Um, so Mary has been named uh, as one of the top 25 women trial lawyers uh, in the nation. Uh, she has been named multiple times trial lawyer of the year by various different groups. She was named trial lawyer of the year by the Public Justice Foundation and by the San Francisco Trial Lawyers Association. Uh, she was trial lawyer of the year in 2001 by Themis Capital, uh, which had to do with, uh, with Mary starting uh, a group known as Trial Lawyers Care that after the uh, 9-11 uh, disaster, Mary was one of the people at the, uh, at the forefront of setting up lawyers to help victims of 9-11 uh, on a pro bono basis, meaning free, um, on a, a free basis to help them uh, get some benefits, you know, for what had happened in that uh, terrible tragedy. Uh, Mary has also been a president of the American Association of Justice, which used to be known as the Association of Trial Lawyers of America, or ATLA. Uh, She is in the Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame by the California State Bar Litigation Section. Um, She's also been named as one of the top 25 plaintiff lawyers in California, top 10 trial attorneys by the San Francisco Chronicle, and um, 
and also been named trial lawyer of the year by the Women's Caucus of the CAOC uh, in 2009. So, uh, Mary, uh, just, uh, I mean, you have uh, uh, been uh, um, highly decorated and it's all well-deserved because your career uh, has been uh, just one for everybody to, uh, to look up to. But we're, we're very happy to have you on the show. Well, thank you. It is great to be here. And uh, fortunately that those uh, battles that I had didn't end up in too many wounds, but uh, it's been... <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing about anybody who does trial work. I mean, you're definitely going to have some wounds. And, uh, and I think most great trial lawyers try to learn from their from some of those wounds and some of the things that have happened to them in the past and try not to forget and not to repeat. So, uh, but uh, it, you're, you're not going to go through this profession without getting some wounds. <laughs> well, that's right. And we do all try to learn from our mistakes. <laughs> right. So Mary, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is I read in your profile, which I thought was really fascinating uh, about your first job interview after you came out of law school and, um, and, uh, at the time that you were interviewing this, you were a single mom of a, of an eight year old uh, daughter, and um, and you were the widow of uh, of, of uh, your husband who had passed away from leukemia. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it's just a very moving story. Well, the story really began when I was uh, getting my master's from School of Public Health at Berkeley. My master's in toxicology, environmental health, and I came home one day. And I said to my husband, uh, how was your day? He said, fine, how was yours? And I said, well, I went to the seminar where they were talking about benzene and how it causes leukemia. And he said, how can that be? Because I used to work with benzene. Remember at the civil engineering lab, and I remembered back when we were in college and he was working his way through school, and I came to pick him up at the lab one day where they worked with pure benzene dissolving asphalt samples, and it had exploded. Um, it, he worked with an open flame, and he had been engulfed in flames, and his oh. eyebrows singed. And mm. So I remembered back to to that, and then it wasn't two months later he was diagnosed with leukemia. Oh, wow. And then I, I did work for a number of years at Stanford Research Institute in occupational environmental health. And then I uh, decided to go to law school. And my first semester of law school, he passed away from leukemia. Oh, wow. And, my, and I, when I finished law school, I needed a job. I had the... Uh, tuition to pay back and a daughter and so I was interviewing and thought that I could kind of sell my environmental and occupational health degree along with my law degree and I got an interview with a prominent law firm in San Francisco and the interview day was going very well and they buying me lunch and middle of the afternoon I was meeting with a, the partner that was handling their toxic tort work and he said, uh, well, I have some interrogatories that need to go out. Can you start this afternoon? <laughs> wow. this wow. Interview seemed to be going well. Yeah. But, but then he said, we have a new lawsuit that's come in, and we're defending the oil company that's being sued for making benzene that this widow contends that her husband working in a lab with benzene got leukemia. And... 
she and her two children are suing and I was stunned. Yeah. Wow. And I, it wasn't me, but it could have been. And it was a moment I had the epiphany that I didn't want to represent the oil company. I wanted to do work to represent that people like the widow and children that had lost their husband and father. So that's when I became a plaintiff lawyer. Wow. Wow. That must have been, I mean, clearly it, it was, I mean, of course I'm going to say it's the right decision, but also I feel like it's, it's clearly was the right decision for you based on your career, but it must've been hard at the time knowing that you were supporting yourself and your child. It must, or, or did you just, did you just know that you couldn't make that compromise and it was an easy decision? Well, it, it was tempting because it was a nice financial offer, but I just couldn't do it. I needed to represent people. And so it has turned out to be the right decision. Um, but at the time, it, I had to weigh all the different factors and ended up on this side of the cases and it's just been great yeah yeah well and and it almost feels like that that interview was a sign i mean that that sort of clarified for you you know exactly what you wanted to do with your career and and it's been uh been quite the career since then it really was an epiphany and understanding of where my heart was and in the kind of work that I do, it's very satisfying to be able to help people, to make a difference in their lives, to make their lives easier, to give them justice, and to hold accountable the people that have wronged them, and and still make a living and, and trying to help people. It's, it's really a, a great profession. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, well, let's talk about the case that we're here to talk about. Um, this case was back in 1989. Uh, and it was, it looked, um, uh, Mary, it looks like it was tried in Fresno County, California. Is that where it was? Yes. And okay. it went on for about six months. Oh, wow. The trial went on for six months? Right. Well, maybe closer to five. We started, it was uh, Valentine's Day time and even had a little bit of snow, unusually in Fresno. And it was 100 degrees end of May when we finished. <laughs> Oh wow. Wow. Um, well, the name of the case is Hall versus Yosemite National Park and Curry Company. And the result of the trial was a $13.3 million verdict. Um, and we'll, we'll get into this. It sounds like it was uh, mostly against Curry Company. Um, and, uh, and then I, I think there was a, a finding of 28% comparative fault uh, for the plaintiff in that case. Um, and so I didn't do the math on what that exactly works out to, but just a, uh, a, a tremendous verdict, um, on behalf of your client, Mary Hall. And, um, so Mary was visiting Yosemite national park, um, with her boyfriend and, um, she was from Arizona, I believe. And she, uh, they decided to rent bikes to go, um, uh, trail riding at Yosemite. And um, one of the areas that everybody wanted to go visit was the Lower Falls at Yosemite, which is absolutely uh, uh, beautiful. And, uh, and one of the things that you included for us, Mary, was a, was a presentation you've done on opening statements. So I'm hopeful, hopeful we can put some of this up in some of the show notes and show some of the, the, uh, the PowerPoint slides as far as where this occurred. But, but the bike that was given to Mary 
was essentially a, a cruiser bike, one that was probably made more for riding on the beach or flat ground and, um, and didn't have hand brakes, had uh, only foot brakes. And the foot brakes were worn and didn't work. And when Mary was going down a, a particularly steep part of the trail at Yosemite, um, she uh, couldn't brake, uh, lost control, and, and ran into a tree. Uh, and it uh, uh, broke her neck at C1 and C2. And, um, and she became a, a quadriplegic, a respiratory-dependent quadriplegic as a result of this. And... Um, and it, we're going to get into some of the, the facts. I mean, it, it sounds to me, uh, Mary, like you had some pretty good facts on your side, uh, but also the defendant had some points that they could make on, on their side. We had some very good facts that were that this bicycle really should never have been rented for an area that has hills and mountains like in Yosemite. It really is a beach cruiser with coaster brakes that like when you were a kid, you push back on, but that doesn't have enough braking power for uh, this kind of terrain. And they didn't, they didn't warn her, didn't warn anybody, weren't any, signs that said, uh, like when she's renting the bike, don't ride down lower, lower Yosemite Falls Hill. They handed her a map with, with a bike trail up to the, to the falls and didn't say on there, don't ride your bike there. And, and yet um, it turns out that there was evidence that 50% of the people, I took the deposition of of one of the uh, people who work there at the park and 50% of the people rode up there. And so we had um, in this case, a bicycle that we also proved that had the actual bike that had worn brakes. And the person who was actually uh, working there at the, uh, at the Curry company bicycle rental shop said that, they would use used brakes to replace uh, bicycle brakes that um, need a replacement instead of using new ones that only cost them $2.50. And so uh, we knew that these brakes and the wear pattern on them um, were not new and that they had been replaced, used into this bike. And she just didn't have enough braking power for this hill. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. 
They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. This one of the the things that stuck out to me the most because I had read um, kind of generally about the case, but then reading more in depth and figuring out that she was riding a beach cruiser was crazy to me because like those those are annoying if you're even in a slightly hilly neighborhood because you can't really shift gears, you can't handbrake, you've got to push back. I mean, the the idea of using them in Yosemite Park is seems insane to me. And like the only reason I could think of doing that is that the maintenance is probably cheaper because they don't have like multiple gears and stuff. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe the bikes I are think cheaper. That, yeah, I think that that's right. But they use the excuse at trial that we can't rent bikes with handbrakes to the public because they don't know how to use them. Oh. So during the pendency of the case, I knew that was one of their defenses. And I had, I was in Maui and, uh, and, uh, you know, there's Haleakala Bob that would rent you bikes to ride down the, uh, the volcano Haleakala. Right. And guess what? He, that's a really steep hill. <laughs> and he rented the public handbrakes on the bikes. Uh, and, the judge allowed me to put into evidence Haleakala Bob's brochure showing people riding down the volcano with handbrakes. Oh, wow. wow. Did, you, did you go take the deposition of somebody out there in Hawaii or did it, you were able to put it in some other way? That's a good idea, but no, <laughs> uh, I was, I, I just happened to be on vacation and, and saw it and it was um, because it was countering their defense. The, the, the judge allowed it into evidence. What, uh, who did they have come and say that the public, the general public doesn't know how to use handbrakes. I mean, that seems sort of, uh, sort of ludicrous to me. They had a bicycle expert that um, had done tour de France and he was really um, an expert bicyclist himself and he just thought that, that that was the wrong thing to do. They were too complicated. An interesting story about him is that he had been hired by the defense and had read a lot of materials um, so he could be an expert, depositions in the case. And he also knew that we had found six different people uh, from around the world that had come to Yosemite and they had crashed in the very same place. They didn't break their necks, but they were broken bones and all kinds of injuries. And so he knew all about this hill, walked up and down it and knew all about the accident. He started on his bicycle, which of course was like a 12 speed with a really fancy set of brakes on it. And he, at the top of the hill. did Did his bike have hand brakes on it? No, he, oh, okay. had, he had yeah fancy uh, handbrakes. Uh, yeah, not coaster brakes. Yeah, he had handbrakes. Right, right. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's got um, really great bicycle, and he heads down the hill. When he gets down, to, uh, he has a video 
uh, <laughs> camera with sound on on his handlebars because he wants to show what it looks like riding down this hill. And in the video, when he gets down to the bottom where it makes a sharp right turn that Mary couldn't make that turn, you hear him on the video say, oh, I almost lost it. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, so that, this that is... guy who knew there was a turn and knew all about the he almost lost it. So <laughs> I, I, I read, really... yeah, I read that in your, um, in the outline of your opening and I, I was kind of surprised that they sent their expert down that hill on a nicer bike and had him video it. I, I kind of like one, like at trial, what were they, what were they trying to demonstrate through that? Well, it's a good question. And I think what they were trying to do with the video was to make it look like she was wrong stupid to ride down this very dangerous hill okay and they did another thing uh, which was they put a video camera on a cart and they had a computer calculate how to move this cart down the hill to put together a time-lapse video that would simulate her speed likely speed and what it looked like we tried to keep it out of evidence. We thought that um, it was too dissimilar, and, uh, but the judge let it in. And it, it shows what it looks like, sort of her eye view as she's coming down. Interesting, the very last thing that the video shows is the tree that she <laughs> hit head on. And it's like 30 seconds of looking at the tree. But... Uh, while I was paid for the jury, I, I'm kind of biting my fingernails of what you know, are they right. going to think that she is stupid to doing this. And so after the verdict, I asked them, well, you know, what did you think of that video? And they said, oh, all we could think of was that poor woman riding down that hill without brakes. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, right. and so sometimes evidence that can backfire. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and that that video by their experts say I almost lost it. I mean, that's just like a, a gift from the trial guides. I mean, you had to love it when you heard that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it was the moral of that is uh, turn off the audio. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, I was thinking about that because you know we you know we have experts come out for both sides and they'll do inspection video and they they always turn off the sound. So I was just uh, mm-hmm. man, to have that on there is um is well. Uh, Great. And the, and the whole idea of that video, I mean, it's kind of inconsistent, right, to say that that the people who are renting your bikes are too stupid to use handbrakes, but you can send them out on a trail with a map and sort of inadequate warnings and expect them to figure it out. So they're you know, you can just leave them to their own devices as far as that goes, but they are too stupid to use handbrakes. Right, right. Well, that's a very good point. And the other problem is that when you're at the top of the hill, you can't see the entire hill. The the trail turns uh, slightly, and then you get down to the bottom uh, where there's a sharp 
right turn to continue the, it's not the absolute bottom, but to continue on the path, you can't see that from the top. Mm-hmm. And it turns out she had not come up that way. She had come from the rental place uh, sideways, a side trail into the lower hills. So, you know, they really needed to warn people so that you don't ride down it and and uh, encourage the park to put up a sign there. Right. Yeah. yeah, you know, one of the things I was thinking about this map, you gave us a copy of the map uh, in here and I was I was looking at it, you know, because I know that one of the defenses was that there was a sign that you're not supposed to ride bicycles on that trail, but the map shows the trail to lower Yosemite Falls. It doesn't say don't ride on it. So if you're looking at this map, it shows you exactly how to get to lower Yosemite Falls and no suggestion that you can't ride your bike on there. Um, so Right. And that's one of my points on the trial was put on this map. Uh, don't ride down. Actually say it. Not only not lead them to it with the little red dots, but put on the map itself. Don't ride down lower Yosemite Hills Hill or any, any steep hill, but. And I I think you, I think you had evidence that they changed the map after this uh, accident uh, and did put some warnings like that on there. Was there a a motion to keep that out because of a subsequent remedial measure or something like that? Exactly. It was a subsequent remedial measure. So the judge wouldn't let it in. Uh, but I was glad that we created that change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, well, and so talk a little bit about, because, you know, I, one of the things I mentioned is that uh, apparently on this this trail going to Lower Yosemite Falls, there was a sign that said uh, no bicyclists past this point or something like that. And uh, that was one of the defense's big points. So how, how did you uh, how did you address that and how did you counter that? Oh, I was very worried about that. And so we ended up, I took the uh, rangers' uh, deposition, and we went to Yosemite, and we took one of the rangers' depositions, and I asked him about that sign. And the, the sign is about 11 feet off the trail. And I say trail, but it's really a very wide, uh, from the uh, from the parking lot, it's a very wide uh, asphalt and this sign was kind of off in the woods 11 feet and it's kind of at an angle so I asked him so what is that sign for and he said oh that's to keep the bicyclists out of the woods <laughs> oh so not so not they're to go back on the, the woods yeah okay right oh my gosh he, they're protecting the woods from bicycles so I thought that that kind of uh, did a men on that argument. But there's another part of the story, which is the, the defense wanted to have a jury view. They wanted the jury to go to Yosemite and to see, I think they thought as soon as they saw this hill and how steep it was, that again, that she would be... Uh, in their minds, crazy to ride down it. Uh, we we objected to the jury view, but uh, the judge says no. And I don't, he says, I don't want it to be one side or the other that's taking the jury to Yosemite, meaning it might be fun for them. 
Right, <laughs> right, yeah. So at the end of the case, I'm going to announce that we're going there. So we got a, a big bus and box lunches and headed off from Fresno to Yosemite. Now, so by now it is May and it's a beautiful sunny day. And the jury is just swarming all over the place. And I saw him looking at that sign. This is no bicycles beyond this point. Right. Making me, making me nervous. And um, so it was a nice day at Yosemite. And we drove, we drove around, looked at some of the other, uh, some of the other hills. And so uh, at the end of the trial, after the verdict, I asked him about that sign. They said, Oh, I, you know, like I stood on that path and I looked at that sign and I, w- I would have gone past it too. That was just to, for the woods to keep people out of the woods. Right, right. Wow. <laughs> when it, and it so sounds- the, the, uh, the, the jury view backfired. Right, right. When, and, and you also had some evidence that about 50% of the bike riders would go past that sign on a daily basis. Is that right? Exactly. That people would, uh, according to that ranger, that 50% of the people would ride up there. So he did detract from any contributory negligence on her part. Um, they knew that people were riding up there, and, and that's just what people did. Yeah, and it's shown on the map. So it's hard to argue that she shouldn't have been up there. So the other defense was that uh, – she was not using the coaster brakes correctly. You know, you got to push back on them in, a, in the correct way. And they were trying to say that she was really not pushing back enough, that the angle uh, was, say, 5 10%, 10% off of, uh, let's say, straight down. And you really should be at more like 45 degree angle to get proper uh, of the, uh, to have proper braking on these coaster brakes. And we um, found the witness, uh, was a 12 year old girl that was on the path walking up toward lower Yosemite Falls and Mary passed in front of her and crashed uh, in her, in her view. And, put her on the stand early on and she said, Oh no, the brakes were uh, in the proper place, like about 45 degrees. And she said, and she was stomping on the brakes and nothing Mm. was happening. Well, and Mary, you had learned, um, you had found out that somebody had had an accident or issues with the brakes on this same bicycle earlier in the day. Is that right? That's right. The person who had rented the bike earlier in the morning was a woman, and the brakes didn't work for her, and she uh, crashed on the bike. She wasn't hurt, but she brought it back to the Curry Company rental shop and told them, these brakes don't work. I crashed, and they gave her another bike, but she watched them put the same bike back into circulation in the area to rerun. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. But how, how did you figure out that it was the same bike that, that Mary was riding that had been in, involved in this collision earlier in the day? Well, it turned out that uh, when this accident happened, they, 
the curry company immediately called uh, their insurance carrier and their lawyer, and he had them collect the rental slips for that day. And so we had the rental slip and the person's name. So that's how we found her. Got it. So the, the bikes had some like sort of identifying like number or something so you could figure out who else had gotten that bike. Exactly. So, so we talked so did, to her and found out. Wow. So did you, uh, I mean, I'm imagining how this happens. Did you just uh, locate the same bike and then just call her up and then she told you she was involved in a collision earlier? Right. We called her up and talked to her about it. Did you have any trouble with a bike? And she says, oh, yeah, I crashed and I told them. Oh, my goodness. Told them brakes didn't work. Gosh. <laughs> Gosh. That has to be one of the best calls that you make for that case. <laughs> That's true. It was. <laughs> and uh, along those lines, I know that you also were able to identify other people that had had, um, looks like at least two other serious accidents that had taken place on the same hill. How did you, how were you able to identify um, those instances? Well, that's a good question. What we did was we contacted uh, the park and the park rangers, and they had incidents reports for uh, people that had had accidents there. And so we had their names and contact information. And so we started calling people and finding out about their injuries and would they be willing to come and testify? So we ended up with about six witnesses, people wow. who had crashed the very, very same place at, this, at, at the bottom where the path made a sharp right turn. Yeah, and that's just so effective for a trial like that is to hear other people who've done the same thing. And how, how did the defense try to, try to cross-examine those people? Well, they were all crazy to, to ride down the hill. Right, said. right. And they all didn't know how to use the bike, the bike properly. And so, but you know, it's kind of hard to do to call six people. Right. Um, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Or wrong or lying or whatever. Right. I mean, not to mention the fact that if you can bring in six people, how many other people, you know, managed you know, just by inference that there were more people that went down that hill that either didn't get seriously hurt or there wasn't an incident report or whatever. I mean, at that point, you can't start calling all those people crazy. Yeah. Right. There had to be other people that maybe had trouble making the right, but some of that survived it. Right. And didn't end up on an incident report. Right. So, so Mary, there, one of, the, oh, go ahead. Another interesting fact talking about this trail is that there were, in addition to this 12-year-old girl, there was a couple walking up the hill and that she also crashed in front of them. And it turned out that the man was an emergency room physician and the woman was an emergency room nurse. And so they went to her aid and kept her alive until um, paramedics could get there. Because a C1, C2, as you were saying, means you're a respirator dependent. She couldn't breathe. Oh, wow. So they gave her artificial respiration and wow. uh, saved her life. Yeah. 
Yeah, and those, uh, I mean, those witnesses just had to be really powerful. Well, you're right. I, I mean, I was thinking about that poor 12-year-old, too. I mean, seeing something, I mean, obviously, you know, poor Mary, but, but poor uh, Mary Hall, but poor, this poor 12-year-old to see something like that, I'm sure, was terrifying. It was traumatizing for her. And she was very brave, though, to come to trial and, and to testify, but um, she was willing to do it and thought it was the right thing to do. Right. Did the, did the defendants try to do anything with her, with her eyewitness testimony or anything? It was more uh, not to attack her, but yeah. which was smart, but that she couldn't really see what she said she was saying wasn't the right angle or wasn't close enough and, um, and then kind of implying because of her youth uh, that she didn't really understand or see what she thought she was testifying to. Right. But uh, she was just a really f fine, sweet young lady. And at, at 12, you know, you are able to uh, be a witness and take, take an oath and you understand what the truth is. And so she was a really good witness. Yeah. yeah. So Mary, I wanted to ask you about how this, uh, the case first started out as far as who all you had involved in the case, because one thing I read in here is that with the bicycle manufacturer Schwinn and the uh, brake manufacturer Bendix, that you had a Mary Carter agreement with them. So when you first filed this case, you had Yosemite, Schwinn, Bendix, and Curry Company. And then did Schwinn and Bendix stay in the case during trial? And, uh, and that was part of the Mary Carter agreement? They settled with us beforehand. Okay. And, and so the agreement was that um, if we did win, that, that some of that settlement would come, uh, come back to them. Right. But it was, um, and with regard to Schwinn, as that we were saying, you should never have sold this kind of bike to a rental company in Yosemite Valley with all these hills. Right. And, uh, and then the, uh, with regard to the brakes, that they, they weren't adequate um, brakes even for this particular bike. But um, Schwinn uh, and Bendix were, uh, willing to settle with us before trial. So talk a little bit about a Mary Carter agreement. I'm not sure all of our listeners know what that is. And, um, you know, and in, in some states, they're not allowed at all. And in some states, if you have one, you have to disclose it. And I'm imagining in California, if you had one, you had to disclose it. Well, we... Not to the, not to the jury, of course, but... Right. Um, we don't see them very much anymore, but what it meant was that our client was guaranteed uh, some money, you know, not the total value of her case, but um, it, it was a nice settlement so that uh, it takes some of the risk out for her. And of course she had a lot at risk as uh, she was in a hospital at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center for two years. Wow. And it was actually for the insurance company, uh, health insurance that she had. And it was actually Medicare, uh, Medi-Cal 
that it was less expensive for them to keep her in the hospital than uh, to be outside in some care facility outside or even in her own home mm. with nurses coming in. So this meant um, that she would have um, some money. And right. The, the verdict that we got for her meant that she was able to get out of the hospital and oh, wow. have her own home and her own caregivers. And it's not just, you know, being in the hospital is uh, not fun, but she also would have to wait for the nurses who may be helping somebody else to come and give her a drink of water. And so having her own <coughs> place with her own nurse, nurses meant that her needs were really taken care of. Right. So, but the, so for the Mary Carter agreement, did Schwinn and Bendix have to come in and, and, uh, essentially give you a witness to examine and, and you, uh, you know, had an understanding of what they were going to say ahead of time as far as uh, being helpful to the case or how, how did that work? No, we didn't have them at the trial. Okay. We just were going after the Curry company and, and their negligence that they, they knew and should have known that these bikes were not adequate for the kind of service that they were putting them to. Okay, okay. And then, um, so at the time you went to trial, was Yosemite National Park still in the case? No, uh, we decided, and I think it was the right decision, um, they were not uh, in the case at that point. Uh, Yosemite, the park is really beloved. Right. It was interesting. Uh, we didn't really know when we started out that uh, there were just among those who people who love the park, but Curry Company uh, was not in good favor. That a lot of people felt like they weren't taking care of the park, and uh, they really ran everything at that time in the park, including camping. Like there's still a campsite that's called Curry Camp, um, and that so i think that it was uh, it was good that the park was not in there but the people running the park and the concessions for okay. them was the defendant so so basically curry company was in charge of all the sort of business aspects of yosemite as far as like gift shops and camping and all of that they ran ran all of that all of that yeah uh, so the the bicycle rental was just part of it. And you know, if you wanted to go camping, you had to call Curry Company and, and uh, to get a reservation. Okay, okay. Um, Mary, can you talk a little bit about, because um, we touched on, on briefly on, on your client, Mary's um, medical condition and, and being hospitalized as, as you were working up the case and leading up to trial. But can you talk a little bit about the things that you did at trial to help the jury understand um, the significance of this injury and how it impacted, you know, every part of your client's life? She was paralyzed from the neck down and some some quadriplegics uh, are partial and they can still have some movement, of, but she had none. And the nerve that makes you breathe is uh, is below the level of 
where her spine was fractured. And so she was on a breathing machine for life. And this meant that at all times she was um, hooked up and it was a tracheotomy. It was connected to, I got her throat. Um, and it was, a, it, it meant that um, everything had to be done for her. Um, it took two hours to get her up and going in the morning, somebody to uh, use a hoist to get her out of bed into a wheelchair. Her hair had to be combed by somebody, her teeth brushed, fed, all, all of that. And so it's um, very labor intensive to, to take care of her. And so she had no independence um, and she wasn't able to, uh, for the rest of her life, to walk across the room, um, reach for a glass of water, mm-hmm. hold a child. <clears throat> and so for her, at, um, she was about 40 years old. The rest of her life was going to be that way. And it's very expensive. And so we had uh, somebody who was a life planner figure out what the cost would be both to be followed medically and also to have the caretakers that she would need, all the equipment that she needed. And we also needed, though, to explain that it isn't just those numbers, those cold, hard numbers of what would be the medical care and her wage loss, but what it was like for her to live that way and to be dependent on someone else for all, all of her daily activities. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast and that's legal technology services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal technology services at ltsatlanta.com. That's ltsatlanta.com. Well, it, it sounded like from your, um, from the materials that we do have that you, you utilized in part a, a day in the life video to kind of show, um, to the extent that you can show something like that um, to show kind of what she was going through daily. We had yes, a, a camera come and spend a day with her, cameraman spend the day with her. And from 
the time she got up to the time she went to bed. And then we uh, tried to edit it to show the various times of day and and what would uh, take to um, care for her and provide for her. Right. Was I she it was very poignant. Go. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It was very poignant because she had just uh, received an electric wheelchair uh, that she could operate, and the way you operate it is uh, it, it was like a little uh, stick that uh, would go to her mouth and if you puffed or you sucked on the, on it it would make it go or um, or stop right and so she was learning to drive which you can imagine would be hard to drive and ride on this uh, wheelchair and we had some video of her out on the sidewalk outside of the hospital <laughs> And I just thought it was so poignant that she went from trying to stop that bicycle to trying to learn to stop. Yes. Yeah. Wheelchair. Right. I, I saw that in your, in your outline and I, that's how it struck me as well. Was she able to um, come to trial and, and testify live? Um, did you all have to do video or, or how did you handle that? We were in Fresno and she was, um, in Santa Clara, Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, we had a medical plane bring her in. She had to come with nurses because they had to make sure that her breathing machine and all was working. And right. And we put her on at the end of our case. I stood up and said, "At this time, plaintiff calls." Mary Hall and the two doors to the courtroom opened and she was there in her wheelchair with her flight paramedics everyone in the courtroom not the jury but everyone stood up wow right, yeah. and she was like you know, the bride coming down the aisle. Mm. And I noticed that um, defense counsel stood up and then uh, kind of nudged co-counsel, stand up too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Even they were standing. Wow. And it was really an amazing moment. Right. Did she, did Mary herself have any memory of what happened given, you know, kind of the, the impact of the injuries that she'd suffered. I know sometimes people just can't, they don't have a recollection of, of the, the moments leading up to their injury. What was it like for Mary? Well, for her, she did remember stomping on the brakes and nothing was happening. And that's the last thing she remembered. She didn't remember the impact or, um, and of course, she was unconscious after that. Right. We put her on the stand, so to speak, but she was testifying from her wheelchair. And um, that was also very poignant because her uh, she has to she had to wait for the air to enter her lungs, and then she could talk. And then she had to wait for the air again and talk. Um, and so uh, we didn't have her 
talk very long, but we talked about that part of the accident and also what she wanted to do in the future. She had always wanted, she was going to school actually in Arizona, even though she was 40, she'd gone back to school and getting a college degree and she wanted to open a, an uh, Indian jewelry store. She wasn't uh, Indian, but she just loved Indian jewelry and wanted to that was, uh, open a store. That was her goal in life. Wow. Wow. So she was, so about how long would do you think she was on the stand? It must've been exhausting for her. I don't think it was but about 10 minutes. Yeah. And so Mary, did they, did the defense try to cross examine her at all? No. Uh, which I think was the right decision, but they did read from her deposition and, uh, they had taken her deposition. And of course, there she could, in a deposition, she could take breaks and uh, take her time. But I think they were kind of implying that, well, she sat for the depo. Why didn't she testify here more? But it didn't seem to make any difference to the jury. Yeah, I never think things like that play well to the jury because, you know, like most juries, they, this is the first trial they've ever seen. So they don't know when something unusual has happened. Well, that's a very good point. And they certainly realized how difficult it was for her to testify. Right, right. Was uh, was her uh, her boyfriend, was he still in the picture and did he testify? He did testify and of course he was very emotional about it. Um, he was with her at the top of the hill and she went on down. Um, but disappeared from his view and then he he, uh, came down and uh, on his bike uh, and saw her and he he was able to stop and then um, that was very traumatic for him so he he did testify to uh, no they didn't warn us uh, no they didn't say anything about Lower Yosemite Hill and, and just sort of what the facts were. Right, right. One of one of the things that I um, that I saw in your this might be an outline of your uh, I'm not sure if it's your opening or your closing, but one of the things that I saw and part of the reason why I was like, who knows? Maybe they did. Maybe they did try to cross Mary when she was on the stand. Is because apparently one of the the sort of defenses they had to limit damages was to say that her respirator only needed to be checked every two months. Right. right. I saw that. (laughs) Yeah. It was their expert who came to examine her in the hospital, make sure she really was quadriplegic. And, you know, taking care of this respirator was one of the expensive items. And, um, so to cut down on the bill, he says, oh, no, it's only every, it only has to be checked every two months. And, you know, she's dependent on her life on this respirator. And so I didn't think that was the, uh, until the jury, so I didn't think that was a place to cut down on costs. No, I mean, well, that, and that just seems so intuitive to me. Like the thought, I mean, that's your ability to breathe. Like just right. the thought of that makes me panic. <laughs> Somebody only checking it every two months. That makes me panic. Yeah. I mean, that's right. forever. Yeah. 
So, and one thing I saw in here, Mary, was that there was a dispute about what her, um, how long she would live. And I think you had evidence that she was going to live at least another 20 years and the defense was trying to claim she would only live another 10 years. Um, how did, uh, how did the jury take that? How, how did that come out as far as, um, I think evidence? They, they went along with her treating doctors. We put right. the treating doctor on the stand from Santa Clara Valley Medical Center and who, this is what he does. Uh, I think we actually had two of them, but this is what he does is take care of people with this kind of injury. And it really is a, a great center for spinal cord injuries. And uh, he relied on his understanding of her and her injuries and her general health and uh, said that it would be 20 years. And their doctor said, no, it would be 10. Wow. So that would cut the damages in half. Right. And when you talk to the jury afterwards, what, what did they think about that type of testimony? Because, you know, we see that in a lot of brain injury cases nowadays where the defense will try and come in and say, well, you know, they're not, they're, they're not going to live much longer. Um, we do see that a lot, don't we? Yeah. And the jury uh, went for the, went for the 20 years. Right. They really just seem to be swayed by the treating doctor. And of course, in these cases, we don't can't always use a treating doctor, but uh, we were fortunate in this case. And it really came through uh, the type of doctor he was and caring about these people and helping them. And so it was um, his testimony was very convincing and his testimony was very moving. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I was thinking about, uh, Mary, in this case is that, you know, nowadays when you go to things like where they might have uh, bicycles in, in a national park, you might have to sign a waiver uh, or something along those lines. Was there any issue here of was there any paperwork signed that was like a waiver or, you know, the assumption of risk type arguments? You're so smart. It's such a good question. <laughs> there was. I, I read what? all that stuff whenever we go do it. Yeah. But guess what? It was only signed by the boyfriend and didn't oh. apply to her. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, I think it would have been a different case if she had signed it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Wow. Um, but, uh, and then but you know, sometimes you can get around those uh, these days if if there's really active negligence on their part. Right. And so um, I'd like to think that we still would have had a case, but it, it just wasn't an issue because he's the one that signed it. Right. Like, like, for example, replacing, replacing worn out brakes with other used worn out brakes seems like something that might get you around that issue. Or, or, <laughs> right. or just taking Active the same bike. There. Yeah. 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 And putting in the same bike that had just been involved in a collision that morning and then giving it out to somebody else to say, here, have fun. Um, Good point. Yeah. Also active negligence. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. And, and, and I think you talked about this at the beginning, but I just wanted to hit on it real quick. But the, uh, I think the, the person that they had actually uh, changing out the brakes was just, uh, was a high school student. Is that right? And he basically oh, had been told to just, yeah. Yeah. They would hire high school students. It was the summertime and it's busy. And um, they had a box where they would, 
uh, when they would dismantle a bike when it's truly going out of circulation and they would put these brakes into this box and a, a coaster brake is really has four uh, parts that is the equal size like little squares and they squeeze onto uh, the uh, brake part the pedal part that um, to stop it and so there's four little pieces and they would just take those four little pieces out, throw them in a box, and they have this box full of these pieces. And so when they uh, had previously repaired this bike, they had randomly taken four pieces out of that box and put them together. So we could tell that the four were uh, differently worn from the prior bikes that they were in. So we knew that they were used used pieces used for a repair of this bike. Just, yeah. It's just like bad on top of bad on top of bad, like the wrong, the wrong bike, the wrong brakes, but then also old brakes. <laughs> like it's right. a nightmare. So, you know, we, you're right. And we spent a lot of time in the trial on the, and we had a huge contraption a frame in the courtroom with uh, a bike, uh, the bike, and a lot of testimony about the product that it was wrong kind of bike and these brakes didn't work and didn't have enough power and then they would test it and their experts said it had plenty of power, it's all her fault. But what the case ended up turning on really was with the jury, the failure to warn. Right. If they didn't warn her, don't ride down that hill. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, one of the, uh, the other things I want to make sure I uh, talk to you about, Mary, is so at the end of the day, uh, when the verdict came out, they did uh, put 28% comparative fault on your client. And I, I just, I know you had a chance to talk to the jury. What was their uh, thought process there in, in, in giving her, I mean, obviously you have the sign and, uh, but what was their thought there giving her some of the fault? Yeah, I, I think that it wasn't the sign. I think it was that, that she did choose to go down the hill, to ride down the hill, that even at the top, it looked like a hill. And, um, I don't know how much of it was operating the brakes themselves, but I, um, my recollection from them is um, just to ride down it at all that the, that defense had worn a little bit on them. Got it. Right. So, Mary, one of the things you sent us is a uh, is a presentation you do on uh, effective opening statements, and I was looking at it, uh, and I think you talk about this case, but uh, a couple of the things that I thought you know it'd be nice to have you talk to our listeners about is uh, we've heard about this before from uh, from Russ Herman when we uh, interviewed him, but uh, the rule of three, can you talk about uh, about the rule of three and how you use that in the uh, in opening statements? <laughs> yes, I like the rule of three. And I don't quite understand the psychology of it, but it just is true. <laughs> that uh, And the example that I use is, um, is Churchill when he was giving his uh, speech about never giving up. And he said, we will 
fight them in the streets and we will fight them in the trenches and we will fight them on the beaches and we will never, never, never give up. I might right. have gotten a little wrong, but no, that's, that's okay. essentially it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I, I have seen that, uh, like his handwriting for that speech, he originally wrote, we will fight them in the trenches, the streets, and the trenches, and the beaches. And he changed it to, we will fight them in the streets, we will fight. So uh, he had the three, but it was that kind of repetitiveness um, was obviously uh, much more effective on the list. Well, there, so, there, there is something yeah, poetic about it, you know, in sort of the way, almost like a melody that you're playing and, and makes it much more memorable, I think, to, uh, to most people when you put things in, uh, in, in groups of three. Well, that's right. And so I, when I give lectures, I said, if you can only think of two, think of another one. Right, right. <laughs> right. Even if it's not that great. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, in, uh, and then one of the other things you talk about is, is the hook and how you come up with a hook. Hi, tell us about, in this case, you know, what the hook was and how, and, and, uh, and how you come up with that. I have a good friend that some of your listeners may have may know too is uh, Lisa Blue. Oh yeah. And she says you need to be able to tell the story of your case, what your case is about in 20 words. And so my opening was Mary Hall came into Yosemite Park rented a bicycle, rode down the hill. The brakes didn't work. She crashed into a tree head first and is now quadriplegic on a breathing machine for life. I think it's more than 20 words, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's the concept. Right. So in that, in that, uh, kind of a long sentence, we know what happened. We know why it happened. And we know what the result was, and we know really what the damages are, right? You know, this is a big case. Right. So that's the kind of hook at, that um, now the jury wants to know more, like you know, more about how did this happen, and uh, you have their attention. Right. And then, and then tell us a little bit about uh, voir dire in this case and, uh, and, and what type of uh, juror you know, you thought would be um, best for this case or what you were looking for? Well, you know, I think these days it's more getting jurors off the case that right. might be really bad. And and um, one of my friends is just getting the worst of the worst off. But <laughs> it, <laughs> so I can tell you what, who we didn't want was somebody maybe who had done repairs um, that might be second guessing that. And, um, but I'll tell you that there was one guy that we, we did uh, ask that he be uh, dismissed from the jury and he showed up in the audience later during the trial. And we thought that he knew too much about repairs, but, he cared so much about our client that he came back to watch the trial. 
Wow. So you wow. never know. <laughs> but, uh, and we were also concerned about people who um, might really love the park and, and even love Curry Company. Right. And uh, so we were, those were two things that uh, we were focusing on. Yeah, I could definitely see Yosemite being, I mean, such a beloved uh, uh, national symbol, and especially in that area, I'm sure um, it's something that everybody's very proud of. So that uh, having them in the case seems like it would be, it would be difficult, but, um, but, you know, uh, obviously this is a, a great trial and, um, and uh, just uh, tremendous work on your, on your part. Well, thank you. I do want to add that I did have co-counsel Gary Callahan, who's uh, now retired in Sacramento, who um, was a great co-counsel and um, wonderful client, Mary Hall. I did like it at one point. The um, defense referred to her as Mary Alexander. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like they couldn't I even liked figure out with my client. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and we and we all know, and 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 obviously, congratulations to your co-counsel uh, Gary Callahan. But uh, you know, it, it always helps when you've got great uh, lawyers trying cases with you, and makes it uh, you know more you know easier and and more fun. I mean, you know, at the at the end of the day, uh, on these you know very serious cases. Well, uh, Mary, we've had uh, uh, such a good time talking to you, and and we really appreciate you uh, um, you know spending some time with us and telling us about your your great verdict in. Uh, in Hall versus Curry Company. Well, thank you. It's been great talking with you. Well, thank you, thank you. Well, I wanna remind our listeners that we've been talking to Mary Alexander of, of Mary Alexander and Associates. She's based in San Francisco, California, and you can look up Mary at maryalexanderlaw.com. Mary, thank, thank you so, so much. much. Well, thank you. And thank you for your great questions. Oh, <laughs> well, we had fun talking about this case. And, and, uh, yeah, we had a lot of questions. So right, right. thank you for sticking with us. <laughs> All right, thanks. Great. Thanks, Thank Mary. you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, 
our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.